Section 15 of The Idea of Progress by J. B. Berry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11. The French Revolution, Condorcet. 1. The authority which the advanced thinkers of France gained among the middle classes during the third quarter of the 18th century was promoted by the influence of fashion. The new ideas of philosophers, rationalists, and men of science had interested the nobles and higher classes of society for two generations, and were a common subject of discussion in the most distinguished salons. Voltaire's intimacy with Frederick the Great, the relations of d'Alembert and Diderot with the Empress Catherine, conferred on these men of letters, and on the ideas for which they stood, a prestige which carried great weight with the bourgeoisie. Humbler people, too, were as amenable as the great to the seduction of theories which supplied simple keys to the universe, and assumed that everybody was capable of judging for himself on the most difficult problems. Footnote. Tyne said of the contrat social that it reduces political science to the strict application of an elementary axiom which renders all study unnecessary. End of footnote. As well as the encyclopedia, the works of nearly all the leading thinkers were written for the general public, not merely for philosophers. The policy of the government in suppressing these dangerous publications did not hinder their diffusion, and gave them the attraction of forbidden fruit. In 1770, the avocat général, Seguier, acknowledged the futility of the policy. The philosophers, he said, quote, have with one hand sought to shake the throne, with the other to upset the altars. Their purpose was to change public opinion on civil and religious institutions, and the revolution has, so to speak, been effected. History and poetry, romances and even dictionaries, have been infected with the poison of incredulity. Their writings are hardly published in the capital before they inundate the provinces like a torrent. The contagion has spread into workshops and cottages. The contagion spread, but the official who wrote these words did not see that it was successful because it was opportune and that the minds of men were prepared to receive the seed of revolutionary ideas by the unspeakable corruption of the government and the church. As Voltaire remarked about the same time, France was becoming encyclopedist, and Europe too. 2. The influence of the subversive and rationalistic thinkers in bringing about the events of 1789 has been variously estimated by historians. The truth probably lies in the succinct statement of Acton, that the confluence of French theory with American example caused the revolution to break out when it did. The theorists aimed at reform, not at political revolution, and it was the stimulus of the Declaration of Rights of 1774 and the subsequent victory of the colonies that precipitated the convulsion, at a time when the country had a better prospect of improvement than it ever had before 1774, when Louis XVI came to the throne. But the theories had prepared France for radical changes and they guided the phases of the revolution. The leaders had all the optimism of the encyclopedists, yet the most powerful single force was Rousseau, who, though he denied progress and blasphemed civilization, had promulgated the doctrine of the sovereignty of the people, giving it an attractive appearance of mathematical precision, and to this doctrine the revolutionaries attached their optimistic hopes. Footnote. It is interesting to observe how Robespierre, to whom the doctrines of Rousseau were oracles, could break out into admiration of the progress of civilized man, as he did in the opening passage of his speech of 7th May, 1794, proposing the decree for the worship of the Supreme Being. End of footnote. The theory of equality seemed no longer merely speculative, for the American Constitution was founded on democratic equality, whereas the English Constitution, which before had seemed the nearest approximation to the ideal of freedom, 
was founded on inequality. The philosophical polemic of the masters was waged with weapons of violence by the disciples. Chomet and Hébert, the followers of Dolbach, were destroyed by the disciples of Rousseau. In the name of the creed of the Vicar Savoyard, the Jacobin club shattered the bust of Helvetius. Mably and Morley had their disciples in Babeuf and the Socialists. A naive confidence that the political upheaval meant regeneration and inaugurated a reign of justice and happiness pervaded France in the first period of the Revolution, and found a striking expression in the ceremonies of the Universal Federation in the Champ de Mars on 14th July, 1790. The festival was theatrical enough, decreed and arranged by the Constituent Assembly, but the enthusiasm and optimism of the people who gathered to swear loyalty to the new Constitution were genuine and spontaneous. Consciously or subconsciously, they were under the influence of the doctrine of progress, which leaders of opinion had for several decades been insinuating into the public mind. It did not occur to them that their oaths and fraternal embraces did not change their minds or hearts, and that, as Tyne remarked, they remained what ages of political subjection and one age of political literature had made them. The assumption that new social machinery could alter human nature and create a heaven upon earth was to be swiftly and terribly confuted. Postuarios casus et tot discrimina rerum uenimus in latium. But latium was to be the scene of sanguinary struggles. Another allied and fundamental fallacy, into which all the philosophers and Rousseau had more or less fallen, was reflected and exposed by the revolution. They had considered man in vacuo. They had not seen that the whole development of a society is an enormous force which cannot be talked or legislated away. They had ignored the power of social memory and historical traditions, and misvalued the strength of the links which bind generations together. So the revolutionaries imagined that they could break abruptly with the past, and that a new method of government, constructed on mathematical lines, a constitution, to use words of Burke, quote, ready-made and ready-armed, mature in its birth, a perfect goddess of wisdom and of war, hammered by our blacksmith midwives out of the brain of Jupiter himself, close quote, would create a condition of idyllic felicity in France, and that the arrival of the millennium depended only on the adoption of the same principles by other nations. The illusions created by the Declaration of the Rights of Man on the 4th of August died slowly under the shadow of the terror. But though the hopes of those who believed in the speedy regeneration of the world were belied, some of the thoughtful did not lose heart. There was one, at least, who did not waver in his faith that the movement was a giant's step on the path of man towards ultimate felicity, however far he had still to travel. Condorcet, one of the younger encyclopedists, spent the last months of his life under the menace of the guillotine and projecting a history of human progress. 3. Condorcet was the friend and biographer of Turgot, and it was not unfitting that he should resume the design of a history of civilization in the light of the idea of progress, for which Turgot had only left luminous suggestions. He did not execute the plan, but he completed an elaborate sketch in which the controlling ideas of the scheme are fully set forth. His principles are to be found almost entirely in Turgot. But they have a new significance for Condorcet. He has given them wings. He has emphasized and made deductions. Turgot wrote in the calm spirit of an inquirer. Condorcet spoke with the verve of a prophet. He was prophesying under the shadow of death. It is amazing that the optimistic sketch of a historical picture of the progress of the human mind, published in 1795, should have been composed when he was hiding from Robespierre in 1793. Condorcet was penetrated with the spirit of the encyclopedists, of whom he had been one, 
and his attitude to Christianity was that of Voltaire and Diderot. Turgot had treated the received religion respectfully. He had acknowledged providence, and, though the place which he assigned to providence was that of a sort of honorary president of the development of civilization, who might disappear without affecting the proceedings, there was a real difference between his views and those of his friend as to the role of Christianity and the civilization of the Middle Ages. A more important difference between the two thinkers is connected with the different circumstances in which they wrote. Turgot did not believe in the necessity of violent changes. He thought that steady reforms under the existing regime would do wonders for France. Before the revolution, Condorcet had agreed, but he was swept away by its enthusiasm. The victory of liberty in America and the increasing volume of the movement against slavery, one of the causes which most deeply stirred his heart, had heightened his natural optimism and confirmed his faith in the dogma of progress. He felt the exhilaration of the belief that he was living through one of the greatest revolutions of the human race, and he deliberately designed his book to be opportune to a crisis of mankind, at which a picture of revolutions of the past will be the best guide. Feeling that he is personally doomed, he consoles himself with brooding on the time, however remote, when the sun will shine, quote, on an earth of none but free men, with no master save reason, for tyrants and slaves, priests and their stupid or hypocritical tools will all have disappeared, close quote. He is not satisfied with affirming generally the certainty of an indefinite progress in enlightenment and social welfare. He sets himself to think out its nature, to forecast its direction, and determine its goal, and insists, as his predecessors had never done, on the prospects of the distant future. 4. His ambitious design is, in his own words, to show, quote, the successive changes in human society, the influence which each instant exerts on the succeeding instant, and thus, in its successive modifications, the advance of the human species towards truth or happiness. Taken literally, this is an impossible design, and to put it forward as a practical proposition is as if a man were to declare his intention of writing a minute diary of the life of Julius Caesar from his birth to his death. By stating his purpose in such terms, Condorcet reveals that he had no notion of the limitations which confine our knowledge of the past, and that even if he had conceived a more modest and practicable program, he would have been incapable of executing it. His formula, however, is worth remembering. For the unattainable ideal which it expresses reminds us how many periods and passages of human experience must always remain books with seven seals. Condorcet distinguished ten periods of civilization, of which the tenth lies in the future, but he has not justified his divisions, and his epochs are not coordinate in importance. Yet his arrangement of the map of history is remarkable as an attempt to mark its sections not by great political changes, but by important steps in knowledge. The first three periods, the formation of primitive societies, followed by the pastoral age and the agricultural age, conclude with the invention of alphabetic writing in Greece. The fourth is the history of Greek thought, to the definite division of the sciences in the time of Aristotle. In the fifth, knowledge progresses and suffers obscuration under Roman rule, and the sixth is the Dark Age which continues to the time of the Crusades. The significance of the seventh period is to prepare the human mind for the revolution which would be achieved by the invention of printing with which the eighth period opens. Some of the best pages of the book develop the vast consequences of this invention. The scientific revolution effected by Descartes begins a new period, which is now closed by the creation of the French Republic. The idea of the progress of knowledge had created the idea of social progress and remained its foundation. 
It was therefore logical and inevitable that Condorcet should take advance in knowledge as the clue to the march of the human race. The history of civilization is the history of enlightenment. Turgot had justified this axiom by formulating the cohesion of all modes of social activity. Condorcet insists on the indissoluble union between intellectual progress and that of liberty, virtue, and the respect for natural rights, and on the effect of science in the destruction of prejudice. All errors in politics and ethics have sprung, he asserts, from false ideas which are closely connected with errors in physics and ignorance of the laws of nature. And in the new doctrine of progress he sees an instrument of enlightenment which is to give the last blow to the tottering edifice of prejudices. It would not be useful to analyze Condorcet's sketch or dwell on his obsolete errors and the defects of his historical knowledge. His slight picture of the Middle Ages reflects the familiar view of all the 18th century philosophers. The only contribution to social amelioration which he can discover in a period of nearly a millennium is the abolition of domestic slavery. And so this period appears as an interruption of the onward march. His inability to appreciate the historical role of the Roman Empire exhibits more surprising ignorance and prejudice. But these particular defects are largely due to a fundamental error which runs through his whole book and was inherent in the social speculations of the encyclopedists. Condorcet, like all his circle, ignored the preponderant part which institutions have played in social development. So far as he considered them at all, he saw in them obstacles to the free play of human reason, not the spontaneous expression of a society corresponding to its needs or embodying its ideals, but rather machinery deliberately contrived for oppressing the masses and keeping them in chains. He did not see that if the progress in which he believed is a reality, its possibility depends on the institutions and traditions which give to societies their stability. In the following generation, it would be pointed out that he fell into a manifest contradiction when he praised the relative perfection reached in some European countries in the 18th century, and at the same time condemned as eminently retrograde all the doctrines and institutions which had been previously in control. This error is closely connected with the other error, previously noticed, of conceiving man abstracted from his social environment and exercising his reason in vacuo. 5. The study of the history of civilization has, in Condorcet's eyes, two uses. It enables us to establish the fact of progress, and it should enable us to determine its direction in the future, and thereby to accelerate the rate of progression. By the facts of history and the arguments they suggest, he undertakes to show that nature has set no term to the process of improving human faculties, and that the advance towards perfection is limited only by the duration of the globe. The movement may vary in velocity, but it will never be retrograde so long as the earth occupies its present place in the cosmic system and the general laws of this system do not produce some catastrophe or change which would deprive the human race of the faculties and resources which it has hitherto possessed. There will be no relapse into barbarism. The guarantees against this danger are the discovery of true methods in the physical sciences, their application to the needs of men, the lines of communication which have been established among them, the great number of those who study them, and finally the art of printing. And if we are sure of the continuous progress of enlightenment, we may be sure of the continuous improvement of social conditions. It is possible to foresee events if the general laws of social phenomena are known, and these laws can be inferred from the history of the past. By this statement, Condorcet justifies his bold attempt to sketch his tenth period of human history which lies in the future, and announces the idea which was in the next generation to be worked out by Comte but he cannot be said to have deduced himself any law of social development. 
his forecast of the future is based on the ideas and tendencies of his own age apart from scientific discoveries and the general diffusion of a knowledge of the laws of nature on which moral improvement depends he includes in his prophetic vision the cessation of war and the realization of the less familiar idea of the equality of the sexes if he were alive to-day he could point with triumph to the fact that of these far-reaching projects one is being accomplished in some of the most progressive countries and the other is looked upon as an attainable aim by statesmen who are not visionaries the equality of the sexes was only a logical inference from the general doctrine of equality to which condorcet's social theory is reducible for him the goal of political progress is equality equality is to be the aim of social effort the ideal of the revolution for it is the multitude of men that must be considered the mass of workers not the minority who live on their labors hitherto they have been neglected by the historian as well as by the statesman the true history of humanity is not the history of some men the human race is formed by the mass of families who subsist almost entirely on the fruits of their own work and this mass is the proper subject of history not great men you may establish social equality by means of laws and institutions yet the equality actually enjoyed may be very incomplete condorcet recognizes this and attributes it to three principal causes inequality in wealth inequality in position between the man whose means of subsistence are assured and can be transmitted to his family and the man whose means depend on his work and are limited by the term of his own life footnote he looked forward to the mitigation of this inequality by the development of life insurance which was then coming to the front End of footnote. and inequality in education he did not propose any radical methods for dealing with these difficulties which he thought would diminish in time without however entirely disappearing he was too deeply imbued with the views of the economists to be seduced by the theories of rousseau Babeuf, and others into advocating communism or the abolition of private property besides equality among the individuals composing a civilized society condorcet contemplated equality among all the peoples of the earth a uniform civilization throughout the world and the obliteration of the distinction between advanced and retrograde races the backward peoples he prophesied will climb up to the condition of france and the united states of america for no people is condemned never to exercise its reason if the dogma of the perfectibility of human nature unguarded by any restrictions is granted this is a logical inference and we have already seen that it was one of the ideas current among the philosophers condorcet does not hesitate to add to his picture adventurous conjectures on the improvement of man's physical organization and a considerable prolongation of his life by the advance of medical science we need only note this more interesting is the prediction that even if the compass of the human being's cerebral powers is inalterable the range precision and rapidity of his mental operations will be augmented by the invention of new instruments and methods the design of writing a history of human civilization was premature and to have produced a survey of any durable value would have required the equipment of a gibbon condorcet was not even as well equipped as voltaire Footnote. but as he wrote without books the sketch was a marvellous tour de force End of footnote. the significance of his sketch lies in this that towards the close of an intellectual movement it concentrated attention on the most important though hitherto not the most prominent idea which that movement had disseminated and as it were officially announced human progress as the leading problem that claimed the interest of mankind with him progress was associated intimately with particular eighteenth-century doctrines but these were not essential to it it was a living idea 
it survived the compromising theories which began to fall into discredit after the revolution and was explored from new points of view condorcet however wedded though his mind was to the untenable views of human nature current in his epoch and his circle did not share the tendency of leading philosophers to regard history as an unprofitable record of folly and crime which it would be well to obliterate or forget he recognized the interpretation of history as the key to human development and this principle controlled subsequent speculations on progress in france six cabanis the physician was condorcet's literary executor and a no less ardent believer in human perfectibility looking at life and man from his own special point of view he saw in the study of the physical organism the key to the intellectual and moral improvement of the race it is by knowledge of the relations between his physical states and moral states that man can attain happiness through the enlargement of his faculties and the multiplication of enjoyments and that he will be able to grasp as it were the infinite in his brief existence by realizing the certainty of indefinite progress his doctrine was a logical extension of the theories of locke and condillac if our knowledge is wholly derived from sensations our sensations depend on our sensory organs and mind becomes a function of the nervous system the events of the revolution quenched in him as little as in condorcet the sanguine confidence that it was the opening of a new era for science and art and thereby for the general progress of man the present is one of those great periods of history to which posterity will often look back with gratitude footnote cabanis was born in seventeen fifty seven and died in eighteen o eight and a footnote he took an active part in the coup d'etat of the eighteenth of brumaire seventeen ninety nine which was to lead to the despotism of napoleon he imagined that it would terminate oppression and was as enthusiastic for it as he and condorcet had been for the revolution ten years before you philosophers he wrote quote, whose studies are directed to the improvement and happiness of the race you no longer embrace vain shadows having watched in alternating moods of hope and sadness the great spectacle of our revolution you now see with joy the termination of its last act you will see with rapture this new era so long promised to the french people at last open in which all the benefits of nature all the creations of genius all the fruits of time labor and experience will be utilized an era of glory and prosperity in which the dreams of your philanthropic enthusiasm should end by being realized it was an oversanguine and characteristic greeting of the eighteenth to the nineteenth century cabanis was one of the most important of those thinkers who living into the new period took care that the ideas of their own generation should not be overwhelmed in the rising flood of reaction end of section fifteen